Good afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, black materials and white dwarves. In addition, Dr. R. Barker-Balzell will join us to give a critical look at complementary and alternative medicines. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? What's the darkest thing you've ever seen in your life, Charles? That would probably be your soul. <laughs> Whoa. It is black. It is, it's dark as night. Well, especially when you ask me to call heads or tails, I chill. Call it. What am I calling? Everything. <laughs> uh, I'll go with tails, then. <laughs> I think you lose. I guess I lost everything. Too bad. <laughs> All right. So, speaking of darkness, it seems some material scientists have created the darkest matter Besides the universal dark matter, but the darkest matter that you can hold in your hands. They've made this material from nanotubes, carbon nanotubes, aligned in such a way that the total reflectivity of this material is about 0.045%, which is three times lower than that of the previous record, which was a phosphorus nickel alloy. I don't so, know if it's evil so or what, not. So what, <laughs> well, if it's that black, it's probably gone all the way from evil back to good, right? <laughs> <laughs> what happens to all the light that's captured? It's energy. It's absorbed at the surface. Uh-huh. The way these things work is that by aligning all these tubes in the right way, you capture a much broader range of the frequency spectrum. Mm. So when the light hits the surface, it just gets trapped there. I see. Of course, this looks pretty cool, but there's actually practical applications, namely with producing stuff for the uh, military. Right. If they can get the stuff to absorb the um, infrared and ultraviolet ranges much better, then you'd have the perfect black material, since nothing could be yeah. reflected off I of it. I would think it would also be useful for creating better solar collectors as well, right? Capturing the light somehow and, right. uh, and changing somehow it to electricity. Channel, yeah, yeah, definitely. Nanotechnology is pushing the limits in terms of material properties. That, that's always been my favorite scale of existence, is the nano scale. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, and this was work carried out at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, by a team led by Sean Yu Lin and published in Nano Letters. All right, going from the nanoscale all the way up, what do you think about white dwarfs? Well, they're cuter than brown dwarfs, I think. <laughs> well, Maybe they smell better. I think. Smell like lilacs, I think. So these white dwarfs earned their name because they're quite small, and astronomically speaking, they are. You know, they start out like very big stars, but over billions of years, expand into red giants and then collapse. Now, most of them that have been discovered have a particular chemical signature, both hydrogen and helium. But a new discovery by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey over the past seven years has found several white dwarf stars that have more carbon in them. More carbs. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not sure if Atkins would approve of that. <laughs> Although we are all star stuff, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. This was a major discovery by astronomer Patrick Dufour of the University of Arizona in Tucson. It might open a new branch of astronomy because people now need to explain how these white dwarfs could actually come to be with this amount of carbon in their, uh, hmm. their star system. So hmm. a big mystery and uh, something for you all to ponder about. Indeed. Maybe there's life in there. <laughs> Published in a recent edition of Nature. 
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. R. Barca Balzell will discuss the problems of complementary and alternative medicine. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, the claims of alternative medicine practitioners run from the modest to the grandiose. One can't help but be inundated by claims such as St. John's wort cures depression or acupuncture cures chronic pain. But is there any validity to these claims? And more importantly, what is the scientific evidence supporting or disproving them? Well, joins today on the Grox Science Show to discuss this issue is Professor R. Barker Bazell. Professor Bazell is a professor at the University of Maryland in Baltimore where he was the research director of an NIH-funded Complementary and Alternative Medicine Specialized Research Center, where he looked at the effects of acupuncture for pain relief. Author of numerous publications, his new book, Snake Oil Science, The Truth About Complementary and Alternative Medicine, explores these issues for a general audience. Professor Bazell, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. My pleasure. Well, I think this is certainly a very fascinating issue, and I think certainly one that can't help but be inundated by these claims from alternative medicine practitioners. I'm curious, what are some of the more egregious ones that you've come across? Well, in my time, I've been in a health food store that had a money-back guarantee on a cure for terminal cancer. Mm. Now, that was a few years ago, but unfortunately not as many years ago as it should have been. Mm. I think that many of the practitioners have cleaned up their act a little bit since then, but as you say, it runs the, the gamut. I think the most egregious, semi-sane claim is that glucosamine can reverse the cartilage ravages of arthritis by building new cartilage, which has not been validated. It's been invalidated by very good and very large trials. So. This is fascinating that these claims keep popping up. How do these people go about trying to prove their claims, and what are sort of the flaws in their claims? Well, most don't have to go about proving their claims. The FDA can't require effectiveness data on supplements or CAM therapies, and they've been making these claims ever since the most famous snake oil king who sold snake oil in the last part of the 19th century. And it wasn't even, he didn't even consider it a pejorative term. He very proudly announced it, and they actually cut up rattlesnakes and, uh, <laughs> in front of the audience. So the claims go on forever. I mean, probably many of your listeners have heard about Franz Mesmer, who had an animal magnetism therapy back when our country was being formed, and the King of France enlisted Ben Franklin to debunk this. 
which he did, and now it might have inconvenienced Mesmer temporarily, but you know there is a non-pejorative verb to mesmerize in the vocabulary now, and Mesmer is the father of a semi-reputable CAM, complementary alternative medicine, I call it CAM therapy, hypnotism, hmm. So, and they are proud to claim him. Well, I'm curious, in your book, you, you suggest a lot of these therapies might work, but not for the reason that they think they do. Mainly it's because of the placebo effect. Yes, the placebo effect and what I sometimes call the placebo effects in the nefarious family. Just, for example, some conditions resolve themselves. But if that happens, if someone keeps trying a CAM, CAM therapies until that happens, it's natural to conclude there was a therapy that caused a change. This is the simplest and oldest of all inferential errors, after which, therefore, because of which. I mean, the Romans called it post hoc ergo proctor hoc. You know, some symptoms wax and wane over time. People normally try an intervention when the symptoms are near their peaks, and in which case it's almost certain that they will go down naturally afterwards. There's cognitive dissonance. People hate to admit they were duped by a salesman in a turban, you know. So it's not just the placebo, but the placebo effect is it's really the mother of all these artifacts. So do most studies that even look at these CAM therapies not even take placebo effect or these other sorts of effects into account? Well, it's probably safe to say most, and definitely most don't employ a credible placebo group. And by credible, I mean in order for a placebo control group to function, do its job, the participants in a study can't know or at least have to be quite unsure whether or not they're receiving the real, I put real in quotes, cam therapy, or a fake one. And that's how a placebo functions. When this happens, when researchers are able to do this, and when the study is of reasonable quality, which I define as, rather modestly, as having a decent number of subjects, participants, maybe 50 in a group, and they wind up with almost as many patients as they started with, then the evidence, there's just not evidence for the efficacy of any CAM therapy. Uh, well, you yourself headed a study looking at acupuncture. Does that seem to have any validity? Well, it's sort of interesting. I did a couple. The one that I liked most was very unusual study and very, very cleanly designed. And it had something that's extremely rare in CAM research. Now, as, as you know, nobody pays any attention to something like cold fusion unless it can be replicated in another lab. Well, we didn't have someone else replicate the study, but we, we did the study and then we replicated again ourselves. And what it was, was it was a trial to see if acupuncture could reduce the pain from dental surgery. Of course, the patients already had a real painkiller. But one thing that the investigator, the principal investigator, uh, I'm a biostatistician, research methodologist, and certainly not a CAM therapist. But one thing that this investigator was trying to do is develop sort of the perfect acupuncture placebo procedure. So another unusual feature was the study had two placebo controls and the real acupuncture. Bottom line was, experiment was done and no difference. That always happens in CAM research. But we did it again, tried out a, a different placebo control, same result. 
But this investigator did something that all trials, pharmaceutical and CAM, should do. He tested whether or not the credibility of the placebo. Mm. In other words, he asked patients, what do you think you got? Do you think you got the real thing? Do you think you got the placebo, or are you unsure? So what was neat about this study was that, as I just said, for the real comparison, there was no difference. But when we looked at what people thought they got, it was very definitive in all groups, real acupuncture and the placebo groups. The people that thought they were getting real acupuncture, even when they weren't, reported less pain. The people that thought they were getting placebo or were uncertain, regardless of which group they're in, reported more pain. So I thought that was a very interesting finding. So that's actually an interesting control. I guess it doesn't usually show up very often. Right, right. And it, and it should because there's a lot of evidence that even in high-quality pharmaceutical trials, people often guess which group they're in. I mean, you know, like a heavy-duty pharmaceutical will have heavy-duty side effects. So if you start throwing up, you may figure that you were, you know, were in the real, getting the real drug instead of placebo. Fortunately, that's not a problem in CAM because they are not heavy-duty treatments. Do some of these problems also extend to major pharmaceutical trials? I guess the answer to that is yes. I mean, they have, I mean, I'm not a, I'm somebody that you have to hold and force pills down this road, <laughs> but they pretty much have their, thanks to the FDA, their act together. And they're randomized placebo. Of course, some pharmaceutical trials don't use placebos. It's unethical if, you know, there is a active beneficial treatment. You can't use a placebo. But they either use a placebo or a the best alternative, the best active drug. And so they are generally better than CAM. But you have the same problems. Company-sponsored trials tend to be more positive and re- report less side effects than governmental or nonprofit-funded trials. Trials by CAM advocates <laughs> tend to be much more positive than not, you know. You know, after looking at all of these, what's your sense of, are there any actual alternative medicine treatments that sort of pass the muster there, or are they all pretty much don't hold water? I think they're all pretty much water. Now, <laughs> it would take an idiot to say that, I forget the number, but there are over 10,000 combinations of Chinese herbs. So it would take an idiot to say that somewhere on the an herbalist shelf or wherever they, they keep them, that there's not something that might have an active ingredient in there that would work. But how would you ever find it? And I guarantee if you go to an herbalist, the herbalist will have no question, will know exactly which drugs will cure just about everything in the world and won't do you any good at all except for the placebo effect. Why do you think these alternative medicines are are quite so prolific and what should people think about when they're evaluating these various claims? Well, it's extremely difficult for a consumer to evaluate the claims. I mean, I could say that they could take my word for it and uh, just assume that none would work, but that's not much better, I guess, Mm. than taking CAM practitioners' word for it. Mm. Even doctors are now also becoming sort of susceptible to CAM advertising. Why is it so seductive, do you think? Well, because it's partly we all like, I think, some wonder in our lives. Then partly it's the man bite dog syndrome. There's no question that conventional medicine has some failings. And the thing you mentioned, chronic pain, that's one of them. 
and somebody that's suffering from chronic pain, it's true that your internist can give you something that will relieve the pain, but it might give you a bigger problem with your stomach. So if someone comes along and says, I absolutely guarantee that this substance will do away with your pain or your money back or whatever, a lot of people think, you know, what do I have to lose? Except a few bucks, maybe a little more than a few bucks, but I'll try it. And they go, but maybe by the time that they get their acupuncture treatments or try their glucosamine, there are a lot of chronic pain symptoms wax and wane over time. So usually you go and get the treatment when you're most desperate and when it's it's its apex, then chances are that by the time you get back home or a day or two, it's going to be going down for a while before it starts up again. I think that's part of it, you know. I'm curious, how did you actually yourself become interested in this issue? Well, a few years ago, I took the position that basically entails supervising some clinical trials, acupuncture and mind-body. As part of that, I had to read. I didn't have to, but I thought it was coming upon me to read and evaluate you know, several hundred cognitive alternative clinical trials. And very shortly then, I noticed something very interesting about both the trials I ran and the trials I reviewed. You know, and I've just mentioned, whenever a credible placebo was there, there was no difference. I also went to, these trials are generally funded by a center in NIH called the uh, National Center for Complement and Alternative Medicine. And I would go, although I was not the principal investigator of that particular center, the PI would take me. And it was a real eye-opener to meet these PIs. I mean, each one... <laughs> they would have Transcendental Meditation Research Center. And these guys would get up and just, you know, Transcendental Medication could cure everything. <laughs> and then another one, they would sit down and another one would get up. And it was just, you know, and everybody would sort of sit there and nod their heads. <laughs> and I was, once I sat by a director of one of these centers that proudly announced that she had, I forget the word, 48 magnets on her body. And I thought, uh-oh, and then I remembered that fillings in your teeth aren't made out of iron, so I was all right. But uh, <laughs> So that sort of got me interested. Then, um, alas, I saw, especially read in the literature, some quite disingenuous practices and many CAM researchers, and that angered me a little bit personally because, in truth, I'm not so interested in complementary medicine, but I'm very interested in science. And that's a long-winded answer to how I got interested in the area. Uh, I'm curious, though, we are running slightly out of time. I'm curious if you maybe have some last words on just the whole area of complementary and alternative medicine. What? Well, what I did in the book is I looked at the plausibility and credibility of the research surrounding the placebo effects and the plausibility and credibility research surrounding complementary and alternative medicine. I found out that the placebo effect is well documented and has a physiological mechanism. The CAM therapies don't have any documentation that they exist, and their biological mechanism is something like if you take a substance like cuttlefish discharge, shake it in a very special manner, and dilute it to the point that not a single molecule is left in the substance, except then it will help you because the water remembers what started out there before it was all the molecules. I mean, if this strikes your fancy, 
I don't think I have anything that you want to hear, really. So. It's really something, though, that people should be aware of, more specifically just sort of bad science that surrounds a lot of this. There is, and there is some good science, and mm-hmm. the good science says that things don't work. Dr. Bazell, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today and, of course, talking about your book, Snake Oil Science, The Truth About Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Well, thank you for having me. And you were just listening to Dr. R. Barker Bazell discussing complementary and alternative medicine. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. the game. I've been looking forward to this with fear and loathing. But go ahead. <laughs> okay, well, we don't want mean to <laughs> elicit that kind of reaction, but the game is the Grokatron 5000. Do I win anything? Well, only self-satisfaction, I think. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, today's topic, snake oil or bona fide. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know whether you think they're snake oil or they're bona fide. Dr. Basel, you ready to play the game? I know, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, ready or not, here it comes. Person number one, snake oil or bona fide Donald Trump? Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, you know, he, to me, he's sort of down the snake oil path, given the fact that he has something to sell, and it's questionable the value of this thing. Uh, number two is uh, Microsoft Chairman Bill Gates. Well, um, I'd say Mr. Gates is not a snake oil salesman. I mean, I think he does have something to sell that's legitimate, and I have to give him some points for his work in education and especially his work in Africa. Yeah, he's certainly doing a lot of good uh, of late, it seems. Number three is Kevin Trudeau. Oh, Lord. (laughs) I, I don't even... I think an excellent way to rehabilitate prisoners would be to lock them in a room and make them listen to his infomercial for 12, 14 hours. I think that would be cruel and inhumane punishment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, number four is Oprah Winfrey. Well, now this is, now you've you've got me in big trouble because Uh my daughter just loves Oprah Winfrey. And Oprah, I mean, Oprah is never going to have me on her show because, you know, she has, she comes up with some cam therapies that she recommends personally, uh, occasionally. I think, though, that her show probably does more good than bad, and she does encourage 
people to read, which is good. Unfortunately, she's not going to encourage people to read my book, but, you know, still. I guess I won't put her in the... I'll put her somewhere in between. <laughs> Sorry, I'm way from We'll put you on our book of the month list, though. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, all right, and finally, number five is the President of the United States. Oh, Lord. George I Bush. Think, <laughs> uh, I think for the people that survive the Kevin Trudeau punishment and... <laughs> come back to jail, well, make them listen to his speeches. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> now, truly, cruelly and inhumane. <laughs> uh, Professor Bowsell, I do want to thank you uh, for sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about your book, which is Snake Oil Science, The Truth About Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. All right, and now it's time for the question of the week, and here in the studio to answer the question is our very own Bruce Lee. <laughs> oh, Bruce, how you doing? <laughs> I would like my heart back in my chest, please. I did not ask you to rip it out. Flying crane kick. Your powers are truly amazing. Mm. Not only have you been able to rip my heart out of my chest, but you've also managed to come back from the dead. I'm like a tiger with nine lives. <laughs> truly amazing. Okay, so Bruce, uh, I'm sure the audience would like to know, this week's question is, what's the difference between mixing light and mixing pigments? You know, when I'm fighting, I use so many styles. I'm mixing tiger claw with swooping crane and crazy monkey. <laughs> and that's exactly like the mixing light. You mix all different styles. Mm. But when you're mixing color, then you're removing different styles. You're removing different what's possible until what's left is what's not absorbed. And that's what happens when you are mixing color. Wow. So it's like going from five-finger style to no-finger style. <laughs> yes, that is the power of the Zen, the nothing. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.